You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. Let's do it later. Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Welcome. Welcome to Fearless with Jason Whitlock. I am Jason Whitlock, your host. Uh, happy Wednesday uh, to you and yours. Uh, happy two days before Friday and the weekend being here. It is hump day and I'm ready to get humping uh, with a fantastic show because I need the weekend to get here because I'm, I'm going home to visit my mom and family. Uh, they want to celebrate uh, with me. I'm not going to tell you what they're going to celebrate, but anyway, uh, I'm with my brother and friend. Every, anyway, I'm looking forward to the weekend, and so I, I'm excited about today's show. It's going to be awesome. Uh, TJ Moe, the Show Me Kid, is in studio with me. TJ has driven up or driven down uh, from St. Louis. TJ, welcome back. Thank you. Uh, it's good to see you. Good for uh, you to be here. Uh, and then also in, in the A Block today, I'm bringing Shamika Michelle back. Uh, she did such an awesome job. Uh, yesterday that I was like, hey, we got to bring Shamika back. Plus, I'm talking about something where we got to have a woman's take. So, uh, Shamika, uh, I can't wait to see this overtime slip you're going to hit us with after making you work all day yesterday and bring you right back again today. Thank you, Jason. And I want to give away your secret, if it's okay. Happy birthday <laughs> to you. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday, dear Jason. Happy birthday to you. Mm. That, yeah, I feel like uh, JFK, and that was Marilyn Monroe singing happy. Didn't Marilyn Monroe sing happy birthday to JFK? Is that, am I right about that? Anyway, I'm, yes. I'm the oldest person here. I, I should know that. But anyway, uh, thank you for that and uh, spoiling my little secret. I'm really not big into birthdays, but uh, everybody else is, so I, I try to acquiesce or bend to their will. Anyway, uh, Delano Squires is going to join us uh, from D.C. Uh, a little later in the show. Uh, of course, it's Wednesday. That means Pastor Bobby and Pastor Anthony will be here to talk some Tennessee Harmony. We're going to talk about church attendance and why they're concerned that the pandemic may have done some irreversible damage uh, to church attendance and set up some bad habits for people. Uh, so we'll talk about that. We'll talk probably when I talk to those guys, I'll talk about visiting uh, the church that uh, Pastor Anthony grew up in. I visited that church this past Sunday, but I'll save that for later. Uh, let me start this fire. This fire is so good, I had to bring in two firemen to help me control it, make sure it doesn't get out of control and burn me up in the process. That's why TJ Moe and Shamika are here. Uh, but let me get to it. Uh, reaction to Elon Musk's Twitter acquisition 
reveals men value freedom and women value safety. In America, there is no free without the dumb, D-U-M-B. Freedom, not freedom, defines America. Our level of free is directly correlated to our tolerance of dumb. The elimination of non-harmful dumb activity restricts freedom and disincentivizes, disincentivizes the risk-taking that made this country great. Our founding fathers innately understood this. That's why the First Amendment to the U.S. Constitution protected freedom of speech alongside free exercise of religion, freedom of the press, freedom of assembly, and the right to petition the government for redress of grievances. Had mothers founded America, freedom wouldn't be our highest priority. The First Amendment would likely focus on safety, the right to speak safely, assemble safely, and worship safely. We would be the land of safe spaces, not the land of the free. Women value safety more than men. That is at the root of the hyperbolic reaction to Elon Musk buying Twitter. Musk believes in good old-fashioned American freedom. He stated he's only interested in censoring speech that violates American laws, tweeting, quote, I'm against censorship that goes far beyond the law. If people want less free speech, they will ask government to pass laws to that effect. Therefore, going beyond the law is contrary to the will of the people. Musk is willing to allow Twitter to wallow in dumbness, stupidity, and high-risk speech. He recognizes stupidity's essential relationship to freedom. Words aren't sticks and stones. Words have no ability to harm unless we grant them that privilege. Baija Gaddy, Twitter's top lawyer and the person described by Politico as the app's moral authority, has steered the platform toward existing as a safe space for women, the LGBTQIA community, and people of color who support the Democratic Party. Gaddy sets the tone and is the ultimate decision maker when it comes to harassment and dangerous speech on the platform. In 2015, she wrote an op-ed for the Washington Post, which made clear her vision to ensure the safety of groups she deemed worthy of spe a special level of protection. Writing, quote, <clears throat> I'm often inspired by the vigorous debates and controversial issues that occur on Twitter, but I've also been seriously troubled by the plight of some of our users who are trying to silence healthy discourse in the name of free expression. At times, this takes the form of hateful speech and tweets directed at women or, minor or minority groups. At others, it takes the form of threats aimed to intimidate those who take a stand on issues." End quote. Twitter's moral authority envisions the platform as an inclusive safe space. She's not alone. All aspects of American culture are focused on eliminating risk and being inclusive. We've been brainwashed into believing that the founding fathers were misguided and set up a system that overvalues freedom and undervalues safety and inclusivity. 
America needs to reflect the sensibilities of women. You know what would make the NFL better? Women playing, coaching, and managing the game. At our current pace of feminization, the NFL will outlaw tackling and blocking by 2040 so that Lizzo's daughter can play nose tackle. We will lie to ourselves that football never needed contact to be exciting. We were stupid for being entertained watching men risk their physical well-being to play a game. Football needs safety and inclusivity. So does America. We foolishly think in order for America to be fair, all things must be for everybody. I don't believe that. Our founders didn't believe that. The people, men or women, bothered by Twitter's rough discourse should exit the platform. Healthy public discourse is a contact sport. Rude, disrespectful, and uncomfortable things will get said. Human beings lack discipline. We cross lines and make mistakes. It's the price of freedom. Not everyone is built for public discourse. We shouldn't soften public discourse to make room for everybody. The voting booth is the safe space for public discourse. America appropriately changed its laws to allow all of its citizens access to vote safely without fear of intimidation or violence. Twitter is not a voting booth. It can't be made safe without severely damaging free speech. I'd rather protect free speech than protect the fragile feelings of women or men on Twitter. American freedom is irreversibly tied to free speech. Feelings, they're random, emotional, and illogical. They equally provoke love and hate. A properly functioning society or social media app can't cater to feelings. Indulging feelings leads to chaos. Elon Musk is a threat to the matriarchy and the continued feminization of American culture. The world's richest man boldly planted a flag that he stands with the founding fathers and America's founding principles. Proponents of the matriarchy will frame Musk as sexist, racist, and homophobic. Cowardly men will slander him too. Are you a coward? Are you afraid to admit that, in general, men and women have different sensibilities? Afraid to acknowledge that it's a mistake to feminize every platform and industry to make room for women. Too controlled by racial idolatry to recognize that Thomas Jefferson, George Washington, and the other flawed founding fathers conceived documents that created a system that works better than any other nation's system of governance. If so, you're not man enough for this world. Delete your Twitter account and join Hillary Clinton, Stacey Abrams, Joy Reid, and Rachel Maddow's group text string. Mm. That's my fire. Uh, TJ, uh, we'll start here. We'll take, beat, uh, chop this up in little chunks. Am I right in arguing that men value freedom and women value safety? Based on all studies that we've done, men have a proclivity to be less agreeable, to take more risks, and uh, to be more aggressive. 
none of those things jive with safety, right? And so we, we again, all these studies, like if we try to feminize everyone and no one can be unagreeable or disagreeable, however you'd say it, then, then at some point you just allow everyone to take advantage of everything you do. And so I generally, Men need to take risks in order to feel alive. Any man that I have ever met that doesn't take any risks is very boring, usually depressed, has major issues, um, tends to not be very attractive to women, oftentimes ends up by himself. And so, you know, Elon Musk is the richest man in the world for a reason, because he took serious risks starting Tesla and now SpaceX. He, sent, he, he created the first uh, reusable rocket and took a Tesla up to outer space. He's now doing Neuralink. He's getting into the business of being able to manipulate people's brains in hopes that people who are paralyzed and have issues can walk and, and get back. To, like the amount of lawsuits that would be available when you jump into someone's brain, and he's taking all that risk in order to see the reward for society. He's after the exact opposite of safety. None of our founding fathers were looking for safety. They were looking for freedom, religious freedom in particular. And so uh, I fully agree with you. There is a reason that we always talk about men are protective. Men uh, need to find a way to get things done. They leave the women at home while they go take the risk to get those things done. So as we feminize men, there goes society. Shamika, I, I, I want to bring you into this and just, I, I don't think I'm being sexist by saying that women value safety more than men. I, I just think I'm recognizing the differences. If, if one group tends to be bigger and stronger than another group, I, I get if you're smaller and you're more vulnerable, safety becomes a higher priority for you than some man who may be able to more easily, I don't know, fight off a, a bear or, or whatever. A am I right for thinking that women value safety more than men? I definitely feel like women value safety and we should, as you said, most of the time we are smaller. We are the weaker vessel. You know, of course there are some big body wide receiver women out here that feel like they can go toe to toe with men. But for the most part, women do prefer to be protected. And I do think that we are a lot more emotional and unable to all the time come to some logic to make logical decisions. So I definitely feel that way. When TJ said that most of the time feminine men are not attractive to women, that's actually true for most women. There are some who, who don't want a manly man. They want a man that they can take to the nail salon, get their nails done with a best friend who just happens to have a penis. But most sane women, we understand our limitations. And that doesn't mean that we're less than. There's just certain things that we prefer over men. And safety is one of those. Well, and, and listen, I don't want to uh, denigrate women whose personalities, whatever, makes them want a house husband or whatever. Have at it. But I think in general, most women don't want that. That's not what they're looking for in a man. I, I'm not disrespecting those because, again, whatever your tastes are, preferences, 
as it relates to your relationship, I don't want to judge that, but I think a society that has decided the key to making America right is to feminize everything, I think that's a very dangerous place and is going, is going to make America more vulnerable to competition from China, Russia, whom, whoever our competitors are. I, I don't see China going this direction that we're going where we're trying to feminize every platform, every industry. It's going to destroy America. I look, and for me, and I'm sure TJ, but TJ, I don't even know if you're old enough, I look at what's gone on with football and how they keep trying to eliminate risk in mm -hmm. football. And you can't hit this way, you can't hit that way, and uh, you know, eventually they're gonna turn it into flag football at some point, and it disgusts me. It, it, it's, not, it's not the game that I grew up in. We played a clip a month or two ago where Tom Brady even talked about like how much easier the game is. But, but if, if we're going to become, if we're going to reject our founding fathers and say they're too sexist, too racist, and the system they set up didn't cater to women, and it should have been half the founding fathers should have actually been founding mothers, <clears throat> we're going to pay a, price, a huge price for that when it comes to the freedom that has defined this country. So um, it was my senior year of college that the targeting rule came in, and we started kicking guys out for hitting uh, basically above the shoulders. I was already a pretty average receiver. I wouldn't have even made it if, I, if you couldn't be the guy that was useful to go across the middle and get your head taken off. Slot receivers are going to, if they're not already gone and they're on their way out, they're going to be out of the league very soon because what they brought was a level of toughness that other guys either refused to do or didn't have. Going across the middle, catch the ball for eight yards, get your freaking head taken off and get up and do it again. And there was a place for those guys. And now you can't do it. I think this process of feminizing America has been, uh, it's, it's like a two-front war. The first one, it started back in the, the late 80s with the feminist movement. And that was the feminists decided that because the, the male proclivity to be uh, less agreeable, more risky, and more aggressive, that stuff produces more leaders and better uh, production in the workplace. It tends to give, make you more money and such, those, those factors. And so women can't magically change themselves overnight. So they can't just become big risk takers. They're uncomfortable. They can't become less agreeable. Those people don't like to get into confrontation. And so their only option was to tear down men. So that's what they've been doing now for the last 30 to 40 years. It started really in the 90s. This was the third wave of the feminist movement. So you have that on one front. The second front is the media, which is partnered with the government, who has decided they're going to scare the ever-living hell out of everyone all day long on television and in the newspapers. And so you have a newly feminized society that is being fed fear from all of the legacy media through the government and such, and now on social media doing the bidding of the government, and they've decided that they need the extra power. And the newly feminized society has said, yes, please protect us. And the only currency for more protection is to trade your freedom, right? It's like, if you, want to feel, if you want to feel protected from discomfort, well, you need to give up your freedom to say uncomfortable words then. The, that's your only currency. You have to give up freedom to do that. That's where we are. There is a, I mentioned this several, uh, 
several months ago. There's something called the, the Tytler Cycle of Democracy. And so it is Alexander Tytler. He was a, a Scottish philosopher. Back in the 1700s, he wrote this. And it is, a, it is an eight-step process of how democracies over 200 years go from thriving back into oppression. And the history of nearly every country, every thriving democracy does this. You go from being in bondage to developing spiritual faith to then, because of that faith, developing serious courage. And then you go to a place where you have liberty because of that courage. Abundance and prosperity go from there. You get too complacent, move into selfishness. Then there's extra complacency. And then you have apathy. We're right now into apathy heading into dependency, which by giving up our freedom, which pushes us back into bondage. It is a 200-year cycle. We're at, we're at year 250 or so in America, and we're about 50 years overdue for being too complacent and giving up all of our freedom. I can't tell if Shamika's still there. I think she is still there. Uh, and so, Shamika, I would like for, I'm, I'm gonna throw you a tiny bit of a curveball. I'm gonna personalize my question to you. Why? Do you think differently than the women who are given platforms to talk about these issues? Do, do you feel like, is your point of view as it relates to this in the minority, or, or do you find a lot of women who agree with you, they're just not given platforms in the media to talk the way that you talk? I think that there are more women that agree with me than we know. And yes, they aren't given the platform to say the things that I say, or they don't have the guts to say it because they will be ridiculed. Anytime you say something that kind of esteems men or say that you want to be feminine or you want to be a, a woman, you're called names, you're called Miss Pick Me, or you're told that you want to be a doormat and you get ridiculed for these things. So I think that there are women just by the ones that reach out to me that feel this way, but they don't have the platform or the, the guts to actually say it. Whereas with me, I'm going to say what needs to be said. And I feel like the same way we say that women can't change and be more aggressive overnight, I don't think we can change and be less emotional overnight either. And that's a lie that we are starting to tell as if women aren't emotional. And we've been emotional, which is okay for a very long time since the beginning. You know, if I, since this is uh, Tennessee Harmony, there's a story in the Bible where it talks about Abram and Sarah, who became known as Abraham and Sarah. She realized she couldn't have a child. So she came up with the idea to give Hagar, her handmaid, to Abram to produce a child. Well, once she realized that Hagar was pregnant, she was upset. But, but woman, this was your idea. This is what you wanted. And she became so emotional that she didn't like the handmaid over her idea. I think that we are still led by emotion and we refuse to believe that that doesn't always create the best situation. We need men to balance us out and it's okay. And for the women that realize that, we don't have a problem saying, hey, I need a man to be able to balance me out. Those that are against that, those are the ones that come and call us names and don't like it, but it makes sense. We, we are here, you, it's like yin and yang. We need both. 
let me ask you this. Do, do you find a lot of black women in private that agree with you? Or, or does it break along racial lines at all? I think it is maybe a little bit out of balance when you talk about racial lines. I do find that it's more white women that actually reach out to me and are more friendly with me and more you know, of them say they agree. But I'm starting to see a lot of young black women who have watched their mothers and grandmothers do it wrong, who don't want to do it wrong. So when it comes to age, I'm seeing a lot of young black women say, I want to do it better than my mother and grandmother did. Uh, st stick with me here because I want to change up a little bit. I want to talk about this Taylor Lorenz and the Washington Post woman who uh, wrote the story on libs of TikTok, and she's been on social media crying about being doxxed and being harassed, and then she doxxed someone. And, and w an interesting thing happened this week. Tim Pool from the Tim Pool podcast and Jeremy Boring, the, the CEO of The Daily Wire, they took out a billboard in Times Square uh, calling out Taylor Lorenz for doxing libs of TikTok. And Taylor Lorenz is, is upset about it and has, uh, let me see if I can call up this tweet uh, to, to remind my, yeah. Tim Pool and the CEO of the Daily Wire took out a giant billboard in Times Square today in an attempt to discredit my reporting of libs of TikTok. She's upset about it. She's uh, would, she also tweeted, I would, lo would love to know which media buying agency you, uh, did this campaign. So she wants to harass the advertising company or the, the buying agency that did this. And, and the thing, as soon as I saw this, the thing that I thought was, this is what men have been put in a position that we have to do. If Taylor Lorenz, this woman, wants to jump into this fire, wants to jump into this kitchen, wants to jump into this debate, wants, we got to go toe-to-toe -to -toe with her like she's a man and not sit around and go, oh, she's a woman, let's be careful. Because the women are taking the fight to us. And at some point, we got to take the fight to them and be on the offensive, and that's why I have to tip my hat uh, to Tim Pool and Jeremy Boring is is because this is exactly what we're gonna have to do. Uh, I, I, I'm glad they did this to Taylor Lorenz. She's out in the middle of the fight. She's if you're in the fight, you're saying I want the smoke. When the smoke comes, don't start crying and and all that. I, I've taken a lot of heat for being critical of Jamel Hill or Maria Taylor or, or uh, Katie Nolan or, or whatever. I don't care, they're in the arena. I get heat and criticized all the time and, and I'm just sorry, as men, we're gonna have to man up and if they step into the octagon or ring, we gotta be willing to fight back. Shamika, your, your thoughts on Taylor Renz or anything I just said there? 
Jason, you're, you're telling the truth. When you mentioned the NFL and saying that women would want to change the game, I can remember my daughters coming to me and saying, Mom, there's a girl playing high school football. And my response to them was, I hope that they knock her breast off and leave them on the field. Because why <laughs> would you want to play football? And I don't think the guys on the field should make any type of changes simply because a girl is out there play the game the exact same way and if she gets hurt she gets hurt that's the way i feel about taylor lorenz she stepped into this war that she created and now you get what you get all is fair in love and war if that's what you want to put out there then don't be afraid when someone comes to you she they said, you know, did, remember the game back in the old days, Jason, where they would put something on the shoulder and say, I bet you won't knock my mama off my shoulder. And then when you did, you knew it was about to go down. Taylor Lorenz knocked the thing off of the person's shoulder and now it's about to go down. Don't cry now. You did it to yourself. So the, the idea that women always sold to men was that we're good enough, just give us a chance, we belong where you belong. And then they joined the arena and realized it was too much heat and now they need to feminize the arena. And that's where we are. And so I, I just called this up. Um, March 23rd, The Hill came out with a story. It says, following a three-year review, the Army has scrapped plans to use the same physical fitness test for all soldiers, choosing instead to have some reduced standards to allow women and older soldiers to pass. This is in the United States Army. So we're lowering standards in war. I, for some reason, I don't think Russia or China or whoever we may be in battle with cares too much about the physical fitness. We used to say, hey, we need to reach these goals so that we know that the guy that you're in the foxhole with is protected. And now we're like, yeah, but it's a girl. Well, yeah, but I might die. Yeah, but it's a girl and she needs to be included. This is, it's all about inclusivity. And so Taylor has joined the arena and said, this, they're, they're trying to discredit me. They're, they're all misogynist. Everybody... Everybody needs to cater to me, again, I am woman, hear me roar, and by doing that, needs to lower the standards for everyone, except the standards for which she gets to use, because she gets to do the doxing, but don't you dare dox her. So it's very one-sided. It doesn't make any sense, but it doesn't have to because it's emotional. It's totally emotional, and listen, I know we've spent last week, much of this week, uh, talking about Elon Musk, but I, I really think what he's doing here is fascinating, necessary, bold, uh, inspiring, because he's jumped into this fight, knows that they're going to come at him in an incredible way and try to take him down. and and. If the richest man in the world is willing to risk everything about free speech and protecting, and he's not stating it, but to me, he's clearly protecting the patriarchy. He, he's clearly saying like, hey, this is a man's world. No problem if you women want to join Twitter, but it's a man's world and we're playing by man's rules. And sticks and stones break bones, words don't harm you. That's the game here at Twitter. And, and so I'm just wondering, do we think Elon, and I'll start with you, Shamika, do we think Elon Musk is going to survive this attack? 
And will he inspire other men like I've, I'm seeing with Tim Pool, I'm seeing with uh, Jeremy Boring and the Daily Wire. Will he inspire other men to get out? If he's willing to risk everything, you know, again, like I said in my deal, these people are cowards. The men that won't stand up, don't want to take any risks, want to sit on the sidelines and just hope that this just goes away. Things are going to come back to normal without us jumping into this fight. I don't believe that. Do you think Elon Musk is going to survive? I do think he's going to survive because just his very life has shown that he's a fighter and he's a go-getter. And also he has what we talk about on this show. He has FU money. So I, I do think he's going to survive and he's going to be fine. And he is going to allow the place for other men to look at him and want to speak up. Men are tired. Men are tired of being whipped and set to the side by women. So I think we're going to initially see a lot of men rise up and say things and do things that they haven't been able to say and do for a long time. And I think it's actually uh, past due. It's overdue. I think he survives because in order to survive very difficult, whatever it may be, criticism uh, in this arena, it could be government intervention, I don't know. You have to have a why. His why, if you, if you look at what he's doing, he thinks he actually has said that public discourse solving this is what is going to allow us to continue to have a civilization. He said, if we, if we keep going down this road, we're all going to crash. This, by the way, is why he's trying to explore Mars, right? He's worried about the future of civilization. That's, he, he talks about this nonstop. Um, this is why he has the boring company, right? It's like, we need to find new ways to get places if we have too much of a population. He, he's got all sorts of ideas. He doesn't really care about the criticism. He's looking at how do we get to the end, say 100 years from now, is this going to allow us to succeed? And that's really his only motivation. And if you've, if you've spent much time looking at his Twitter, it sure doesn't seem like he cares much what anybody thinks. I, I, I'll, this is a big statement that I, I probably should have included in my mono or fire starter, but, but and you know, maybe I'll <laughs> write about it tomorrow, but uh, th what he's doing is potentially as dangerous as what Martin Luther King represented in the 60s. And we know how that ended for Martin Luther King. We know how things ended for John F. Kennedy uh, when he challenged the military industrial complex. Uh, and, and so I, I can't, I don't know if it was on this show or if I was in a private conversation. I had so many conversations I can't remember. But someone was making the point like, Hey man, they could take Elon Musk out. It, it cuz he is such a threat to the matriarchy and the social engineering and the globalist agenda. He's such a threat to them that anything is possible and it's like if if you can kill a US president, if you can kill Martin Luther King Jr. uh because they're mucking up what your plans are. Maybe they can, you know, kill Elon Musk because I'll say this, if they don't stop him, I do think him with this platform, Twitter now being his platform, men are going to rise up and follow his lead uh, because we look like cowards if we don't. And, and, and that's, I'll, I'll, 
I'm going to start with you, TJ, on this one. My, my whole argument at the end is that the only people arguing against Jefferson, Washington, the founding fathers, only smart people that like have a true understanding of history aren't talking off the top of their heads is only cowards, only men who are cowards stand against Jefferson, Washington, and the founding fathers. They set up a country consistent with the Bible that said, hey, look, we're founding fathers because it's our responsibility as men to create these documents, to create this country, to be in leadership positions. And I see so many men uh, scared of their wives, scared of their work environment, uh, scared of Twitter, uh, scared of their girlfriend, that it's, they won't stand up and say, hey, I'm a man, it's my job to lead, I get it, I'm gonna hear you out and I'm gonna be fair, but you're more scared than me. I'm not scared, and the only way to move forward is to not be scared. And I get that COVID's a bad thing, and you know we could potentially die from it, but I have my faith in God. I'm not afraid of death the way the atheists are. Uh, and so am I being too harsh on the men who, to me, are ducking the responsibility of male leadership. Well, I don't know if you're too harsh on them. They're, they're a product of what has been, the, who they were raised by and what they were raised by. And so I, I, I spend a lot of time, again, I, personal responsibility is always my go-to. However, the generation that makes fun of my generation raised my generation. So the people who have allowed the millennials to run around like idiots are the people who gave them participation trophies because they cried too much. And so we, we have cultivated this group of men. Now we're cultivating a group of, of transgender men, right? It's like we're cultivating a, a terribly unstable environment. And so if, stability, if you go look in like psychology and studies and stuff, stability is, is one of the top things that point to successful futures. If you, if you have a childhood of chaos, it's very difficult. So many of the men that we have in positions of power today did not grow up with stability. They don't know what manhood is. They've never been shown it. They've seen it on television, right? They've seen John Wayne and such. And we've made a serious mistake as a society, not being able to tell the difference between cowardly men who can't be aggressive and choosing the men who have all the ability to be aggressive, but choose when to do that. And we just got a bunch of cowards running around, running everything, who don't have the ability, that's what Jordan Peterson always talks about, to be a monster. The best leaders are people who have all the ability in the world to be an absolute monster and choose not to until they have to. But instead, we elect the cowards like Joe Biden and the rest of the guys who walk around with their tail tucked. Shamika, am I being too hard on men here that uh, don't want to be leaders? No, you're not being too hard on them. You have to because only the strong survive. And maybe if other men start speaking up and speaking out, the men that want to survive will start to get in place. It's just like on this show, Jason, I am the only female here, the first lady of fearless. Now, I could just sit and cry and say, oh, my God, those men are so, so smart and so strong or academic. Or I could just do what I can do, which is wear my shoulders out and, and do the best I can and, <laughs> and, and try. That's not to, all you can do. 
and, and compete as as best I can because as you say, pressure bust pipes and you can either do it or you just get trampled over. And so I do think that we have to start making people be accountable and responsible and say, it is time to stand up and fight. Even the women, our country is really gone down. And if we want to save it, we're going to have to to come together. And people that are weak just need to move out the way, make some lemonade, do whatever it is you feel like you can do. But we have to be hard on the men because, in my opinion, it's the men that's going to save the country. I want to the last thing, Shamika, I'm going to let you go. But the, the, the what what fascinates me or troubles me or I'm trying to have a conversation with black men about that get caught up in, oh, those guys were slaveholders, therefore these documents they wrote must be tossed out, can't be respected. Bob, they're not actually challenging the documents. They're not, they're challenging the people who wrote the documents. I want to have a debate about the documents and what they created and what their intent was. We're so caught up in, oh, who wrote the documents and, and whether they were uh, uh, reflective of the time that they lived in. So th there's a race idolatry attached to this. And I see people uh, using that as the excuse because what I want to ask them all the time is like, well, what would you like to change? What should be in these documents? What should be in the Constitution that's not in the Constitution? Should, should we have something, uh, the, the next amendment we should add, should it be that if you were raised by a single mama because your daddy abandoned you or was locked up, you get special tax privileges? Is, is that what we want written into the documents? Tell me what needs to be changed to cater to your the dysfunction you may have grown up in or the dysfunction you may have created, but I never hear that talked about. All I hear, well, well Thomas Jefferson owned slaves. And, and I, I don't wanna debate that. I wanna debate the document, because unless you have a better idea, and there, there's all, I don't know how, how many different countries are there? I need to do so. They've all written some form of a constitution. They all have some form of governance. None of them can top the ones that these guys created. And so really you're just running off at the mouth because black folks in Africa have had an opportunity to write a better constitution, set up a better system than we have in America. They haven't done it. And so the, the thing, the argument that, and, and Shmeek, I don't even have a question. I'm just gonna let you go because I'm, I'm about to ramble probably too much here. But, <laughs> The, the thing I keep trying to tell people is when I look at Thomas Jefferson and George Washington and, and, and John Adams, I look at them as Christians, Christian Americans, and that's how I relate to them. I don't look at them as white because tr there were black slave owners in America and had they been allowed to be founding fathers and sign these documents or help conceive them, I, I would focus, well, wow, you flawed people that were doing some foolish stuff wrote documents consistent with the biblical point of view. I got a hats off to you. Yeah, you, you were screwed. And, and it's just like, I've written some great columns in my career. 
they're not offset by the fact that I used to uh, visit Diamond Joe's strip clubs uh, two or three times a week when I lived in Kansas City. That, that doesn't make, oh, your, your column's no good now because you were involved in this level of sin. They're not offset by the, oh, <laughs> Jason used to eat a triple cheeseburger from Wendy's every chance he got. My gluttony doesn't offset the work that, that I did and produced. Judge my columns, not my eating habits, uh, not, not my former love of strip clubs and strippers. Don't, don't judge me on that, judge my work. And so I'm rambling. Uh, I'm a, you know what, we gotta make room for Delano. He's around the corner. Uh, we're gonna roll out to DC and bring Delano into this discussion. Shamika, thank you, great job. Uh, you know, don't, don't send your overtime slip in. Uh, let me tell you guys about Good Ranchers. America has a meat problem because almost everything in grocery stores comes from corporate-run farms. What does that mean? Corporate farms raise huge amounts of animals in crowded, inhumane conditions, increasing the speed of animal growth through growth hormone injections. That's why you need to see our friends over at Good Ranchers. With Good Ranchers, their animals are ethically raised and sustainably sourced. They do things the right way and it shows in every box. They only sell 100% American meat sourced from local American farms. That's right, you get your meat from people, not from corporations. With Good Ranchers, you will receive the best USDA prime and upper choice beef, premium seafood, and chicken that's better than organic, all at a price and quality that can't be matched by your local grocery store. And you'll be able to get all of this delivered right to you in the comfort of your home. Get your $30 discount on prime steaks and better than organic chicken. Go to GoodRanchers.com fearless to save on the quality you've been looking for. Use my code fearless and enjoy your box of 100% American meat and your $30 savings. Order now to combat inflation with Good Ranchers, American meat delivered. I'm gonna add this on like I do most of the time, but I'm gonna say it this time and I really mean it. You wanna be a part of this fearless army, you wanna be a fearless soldier, you need to be supporting Good Ranchers because they support you. You gotta support the sponsors that support you. Don't just go throw your money away on stuff, that, companies and corporations that don't support you and the values that you support. You gotta eat. You love to eat, even I'm at the end of a 72 hour fast in three minutes. Uh, I'm gonna eat. I'm gonna eat meat. Tonight, we're all going to dinner. I'm gonna eat, get you some good ranchers meat and support the people that support you. All right, the smartest man on the show, Delano Squires. Thanks. Hey, hey, what's up, Bunks? Hey, what's up, buddy? How you doing, man? What you popping off? Oh, man, you know how I do, man. I'm sitting up here, got this good ranch that's jumping off. Yeah. You know how I do, what man. Are those burgers? Burgers? <laughs> them, is, them is good, old-fashioned American Wagyu steak burgers. Boy, you better yeah. watch your mouth. Hey, man, let me tell you something. Something about this good ranch is, I don't know. This good ranch is put a song in my heart. Make me want to sing. Yeah. You know what I'm Try saying? Try to make it look like rock stars out here with this grill. What we should do, we ought to come up with a little song, a little something pitch to the good ranchers people. 
See if we can come up with something. I don't know, man. We we ought to come up with a little jingle or something, man. Something to put a little something. I don't know, man. Maybe something like um. to D.C. and bring in uh, maybe our favorite guest, uh, Delano Squires. Uh, Delano, it's Wednesday. We're not used to seeing you on a hump day, on a Wednesday, on a Tennessee mm -hmm. Harmony Day, but you fit right in. Uh, you wrote a great column yesterday, and I want to zero in on one point that I think relates to this conversation we've been having about Elon Musk and Twitter. Uh, I'm going to read these uh, grabs from your column. Conservatives may not realize it, but this uneven playing field is a long-term strategic advantage. The average person on the right has had to examine their underlying worldview assumptions, define their terms, and work out their arguments in an environment that is often very hostile. Liberals don't have to think very deeply about their ideas because they tend to stay in ide ideological bubbles where probing questions are not allowed. Elon Musk's purchase of Twitter is an existential crisis for people who have become accustomed to asserting opinions as facts to an audience with the same beliefs. What I love about this is, because I think it is true, when you come at things from a conservative or a biblical perspective in this modern America that we have today, you're going to get challenged. You're going to get challenged in the classroom, you're going to get challenged over social media, Iron is going to sharpen your iron. And so the left doesn't realize this, but Elon Musk is actually doing them a favor and is mm. going to have the left have some iron applied to their iron <laughs> and hopefully elevate discussions and elevate people's thinking. Uh, I, I, I thought that was great a way of, of explaining like the benefits of what Musk is doing. He's going to level the playing field, make the competition more intense, and we should all benefit from that. I mean, I, I totally agree, Jason. Um, the only question is whether 
the left will see this as a threat or an opportunity. My sense, just given you know the left's history over the last couple of years, is that they'll see it as a threat. And instead of hunkering down and really focusing in, focusing in on their arguments, um, they'll just run. They'll run to other platforms. They'll run to other subject issues. They'll change the terms of debate. Um, and this is what I write about in the piece, right? These are this is the the three-legged stool of deception. One is censorship, and that's the part that I focused on because that's the part that people believe Elon Musk will um, be able to remedy. But the other is running from debate, which the left does often, right? You, they they rarely have you know shows where they invite on a sensible conservative to debate you know a sensible liberal on particular issues. They rather stay in an echo chamber. And then the third piece is um, basically changing definitions and terms. It's wordplay. Um, and that's why m- most of the left's highest priority issues are built entirely on euphemisms and cliches. So they'll, they'll, the most popular one now is gender-affirming care. And, and the average person who hears it says, oh, I, I, I want to be affirming. I, I think, yeah, affirming sounds like a good name. Until you realize that gender-affirming care is, is the social, medicinal, and surgical transition, quote-unquote, of, of children. And when you tell per, a person that um, two of those three things involve giving, pumping kids full of drugs and hormones that'll make them sterile, and then cutting off their private parts and giving teenage girls double mastectomies, uh, it really draws out the argument, and I think it'll make people a lot less likely to buy into it. But when you when you can hide behind terms and you can run from debate, then you can push your agenda pretty far. And so I I agree with you. I think it gives them the opportunity to have iron sharpening iron. But my sense is (laughs) sometimes this is this, you know, comes up in when, you know, when two people who love each other, know each other, get into a little conflict, one of them just runs away. And you'll say, we got a runner. And you know that if you if you push a particular button, they're gone. Um, and I think that's what you're going to see with the left. The reason I don't, why I disagree with that is because mm-hmm. I think it's almost like the UFC. If mm-hmm. you want to really make a name for yourself in the MMA, mixed martial arts, you got to fight in the UFC. You can go fight in these other classifications and uh, other places and make a little money, but ain't nobody really feeling you. And, and I think in the arena of public discourse, particularly for media people, there's only one arena for that. The, the, the left has nowhere to run. I, I know Joy Reid was on TV talking about, you can catch me at Counter Social or so, something, something <laughs> else. She, I, I can't remember what place she said. She gave her name or whatever. I was like, ain't nobody going there. And, and, and so what, what Musk is betting on is that he has the only octagon that matters. Mm. And, and so the people that run are just gonna disappear into the abyss, no different than the people that, and again, I'm not sliding, Getter, Gab, Parler, uh, True Social, any, but, but I'm just not sure habits have been established. Mm-hmm. To see the, the left pick up and move from this octagon, I, I just can't see it. So I, I go ahead. Let, let me go jump ahead, in Delano. real quick. 
What's up, TJ? I, yeah. I didn't know you were there. Yeah. Um, real, really <laughs> quick, I think um, I would agree with that sentiment, Jason. But here, here's the thing. The left has very few true titans. We have tomato cans masquerading, masquerading <laughs> as titans. And what they do, for instance, right, I'll pick on one of my favorite people to talk about, Ibram X. Kendi. So Kendi doesn't do debates, partly because Kendi can't even deter, uh, define racism in a non-circular form. So what Kendi will do, he'll sit down and talk to one of your favorites, Jamel Hill. Um, he'll, he'll do friendly interviews. He'll write in The Atlantic. He'll write his books. He'll talk to Gail King. He make post content on Twitter, but he's not debating anybody. And he doesn't have to debate anybody because Twitter, it just, it just and then this is the part of the whole left, the left freak out that I never understood. Elon Musk is not going to be creating content. Um, Twitter is a platform for content creators. So it's not like he's going to be on there saying, I love white supremacy and bring back apartheid to America. He's not going to do that. All he's going to do is provide a platform for people to speak freely, hopefully respectfully, but freely, you know, in, in the public square. So um, you will have these same people, the Jamel Hills, the Ibram Kendis, the Joy Reeds, um, the Hannah Nicole Joneses, the Ta-Nehisi Coates, even the people who've written books. They, there's nothing that will force them out of their behavior because all they do, they post the content. Their followers say, oh, wow, did you read this new essay from this person or the next person? The followers will will pass it around. They may get into debates, but there's nothing there's nothing in the market. Um, no market forces are forcing people like that to engage in substantive debates. And even when they get outside people, conservatives or whoever, whoever who say, I challenge Ibram Kendi to a debate. Right. So when you get someone like Glenn Lowry say, I would have Nicole Hannah-Jones on my show in a second. She, she has no incentive to do that because I think she realizes that when you put these ideas in a ring together, Jason, and, and you don't tie one person's hand behind their back, they're going to get beaten up. And she knows that. So that's why she just would rather not do it. And, and I think th that is the dynamic that I think is, is still here with Twitter. I don't think Musk buying the platform is going to change that. But again, we'll see. We'll, we'll see if it does. Uh, I'm going to tell you what you've been describing is like things have totally flipped. And you're talking about Ibram, Kendi, Ibram X. Kendi is a great black hope. Uh, Hannah Nicole <laughs> Jones, a great black hope. Uh, the beating up on soft competition or no competition, got all this hype, get in a get in a real fight, and they fold like a like a cheap suit. TJ, you got it. Yeah, I think uh, what's the girl's name on the View? Sunny Hostin. Yeah. Okay. She told us exactly what she's going to do. She said, "I utilize the block button. That's my favorite thing in the world. They mm -hmm. are going to create their own place where they're the only ones that have to. That their only discourse will continue to be with those people who agree with them." The, the issue that they're going to have, because let's not, let's not underestimate just how narcissistic these people are. They are addicted to Twitter. It is a massive dopamine hit every time they get on there. And so the, Sean King deleted his profile for like five hours and realized he couldn't take it that long without somebody <laughs> telling him how right and great he was. That is the entire left. The, the problem they're going to have 
is that Twitter used to take those ideas, whether they were popular or not, and prop them up and make them trend. And so they thought mm -hmm. every comment they made was worth an applause. And it's just not true. And so that's number one. The second thing that I think is going to be a massive change in our public discourse and a huge issue for the left is that for years, they've been able to frame the, deba the debate. And so they get to come in and say, inclusion is great because X. And now conservatives would have to come in and say, well, but what about, uh, I, I heard somebody talk about this the other day, what about, what about um, diversity of thought? You guys like, like diversity, what, what about diversity of thought? Well, you've just seeded the idea that diversity is a top value. Why did they get to frame the debate in that way? Diversity shouldn't be a top value, certainly not the top value. And so they've spent all these years getting to frame the debate that they want to argue. They can't even argue in the debates that they create. What are they gonna do now in debates that they don't make up themselves? It's an interesting point. It, it's, it, it leads me to the one thing I, I, I meant to say earlier is that like Twitter, and, and this is what I think really scares them, is Twitter has been the fact checker for the left. Mm. And so they can say whatever they want, turn to Twitter as their fact checker, and Twitter's always gonna confirm, oh, this is mostly true or all the way true, 100% true. And so the left has been able to say, whoo, uh, black men can't go outside without being killed by police. Right. And Twitter would say, yep, that's mostly true. Uh, there's a rare few, Barack Obama and LeBron James are the only exceptions. And that's because they live in gated communities. Everybody else, it's every man for yourself. T Twitter yeah. fact checks and, and supports all of their false narratives and they're afraid that Elon Musk is gonna, you know, how are we gonna get these lies off and get them confirmed if Twitter doesn't confirm them and, and we don't have the algorithms rigged to confirm these false narratives and misinformation and disinformation uh, that we put out. Uh, so let me ask you this, Delano, going mm -hmm. back to our earlier conversation uh, about Elon Musk and Twitter and, and th this, I, I was making the argument that, and we were having a discussion, Tamika, uh, Shamika and TJ and I, that I don't know if you saw this, that uh, the Daily Wire CEO, Jeremy Boring, and uh, Tim Poole from the Tim Poole podcast, uh, they put up a billboard in Times Square going after Taylor Lorenz from the Washington Post for doxing libs of TikTok. I'm applauding this and, and, and saying like, hey look guys, I know we don't like to scrap with women, but Taylor Lorenz and women have jumped into this arena and they're throwing punches. Mm -hmm. they, may not, they may be passive aggressive punches, they may be punches uh, below the belt, but they're throwing punches, they're throwing haymakers too. And I think as men, we're, we're gonna have to say, you know what, enough is enough. You're in this arena, you wanna throw punches? I'm gonna throw some punches back. I, I love what these guys did here. I mean, th this is a, a fascinating dynamic. It's not just as it relates to Twitter, but just in our, in our sort of national cultural discourse in general. And the dynamic is when you have women or black folk or LGBT people who say, we want equality. But really what they mean is we want protectionism. Because real equality would say, okay, whatever the, the environment is, whatever the rules of play, 
I want to be held to those same standards, not held to a higher standard and not held to a lower standard. So, you know, people will say, you know, politics ain't beanbag. So if political discourse is rough and tumble, then I as a woman say, you know what, I can hang with the boys. And I think if that was truly the case, then then people, white folks, men, straight, uh, you know, heterosexuals or Christians or whoever would say, okay, this group that says that they've been been denied access, they want to enter into these arenas um, with the same set of rules as everybody else. Let's 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 have a dance. Let's have a go at it. But that's not the case. What Taylor Lorenz wants to do is to dox other people, including women. She wants to be able to insult other people. Um, she wants to be able to say whatever she wants with no repercussions. And I see, and I see this. I mean, I've been following this sort of in the black cultural space for a long time where, you know, CNN will put out a headline that says um, there's no greater danger in America than an angry white man. I'm, I'm paraphrasing. The Daily Beast has one that say, you damn Karens are killing us. The Root has has one had one that said um, um, it's white people, not uh, gun control. That's the biggest problem in America. So something to that effect. So, but when the the people being attacked in these articles respond, then these folks want to go and run inside and cry to their mothers. And to me, you you may think that that's equality, but no one will ever respect you. They may not say it to you publicly because again, they don't want to get doxxed or banned or fired from their job. But you will never get the respect of the people who you say have been denying it to you. And I think Taylor Lorenz is the type of person who is not cut out for this business. Right. And Jason, I'm, I'm not I, I'm a person who likes to debate, but I'm not a, a, a person who goes looking for conflict. I'm not naturally sort of disputatious, so to speak. But if it comes, I'm, I'm down for it. And I realize I can't be engaged in public discourse and in these public debates and then and then cry and whine. And I, and I say that as a person who does not engage in that homonym. I try not to, to, to talk about people and make personal comments. That's, that's not my scene. I get it back. But I realize that that's that's part of the deal in the same way when professional athletes like Russell Westbrook who make 40 million dollars a year, have a few people calling him Westbrook. And then he 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 balls up in the fetal position and needs a comfort squirrel and, and, a, and a bib and a blankie and, and a warm hot chocolate. It's like you you're not cut cut out for this and, and you can't be the type of person who wants to get personal and attack people and engage in ad hominem. And then when people give you the lightest pushback, run and, and to the hall monitor and say, oh, this person is picking on me. And I think Taylor Lorenz is that type of person. And I don't think that that type of behavior should be encouraged or allowed. I'm going to extend your argument. And I love the way you brought Russell Westbrook and that example in. I'm, I'm going to extend it to one that I've made repeatedly uh, since 2008, maybe 2007. Uh, that this whole thing of uh, questioning where Barack Obama was born, and oh my <laughs> God, that's racist, and it's, it's, it's like, this is so far beyond the pale, and oh my God, Donald Trump is the worst human being on the planet, he questioned. Now, Hillary Clinton was the first person to put that in play. She did that before Donald Trump. But let's say Donald Trump did it. What, what I've always argued was like, well, hold on, man. Y'all do know what politics is, that, that this is a blood sport. They kill people in this arena. Uh, mm. 
Hamilton and Burr, one of them died. I can't remember which one, <laughs> but, but, but even, even beyond that, let's take it more recent. People have comfortably accused the Clintons of multiple murders. Mm. Multiple, the Clintons of multiple. So someone questioning where Barack Obama was born when his father was a foreigner. I just don't see it as beyond the pale and, oh, I can't believe they're doing this in politics and this is the worst thing that's happened in politics. It's not. JFK got assassinated on TV mm-hmm. or on the Zuprito film, not on TV. But I, I just, I, I've never understood this whole yeah. uh, questioning Obama's where he was born or whatever as the, the worst thing that's ever happened in politics. A billion things happen worse than that in politics. I think it just it speaks to um, again the the uneven playing field, right? Because what to your point, right? N- now, I, I didn't have an issue with the questions when they were first raised because questions are just questions until they're answered, and once they've been sufficiently answered, then then they should go away. Um, but if he was born in Kenya, there's nothing wrong with being born in Kenya, because I guarantee you, you, Barack Obama was um, Kamala Harris. Right. And he spent a significant portion of his childhood or his his dad was from Canada. And and the rumor was he was born in Canada. Then nobody was saying anything about it. But the reaction from the left is is projection in terms of how they think of Kenya. Um, And you've seen that. You see that, you know, all the time. It's, It's in the same way that the left says that they value diversity. But if you have an institution like a school that's 95 percent black, then it's not diverse anymore. Then it's segregated, which they mean it, it's it's inferior. But Je- Jason, here here's a, a even more recent example. Brett Kavanaugh, his Supreme Court hearing, I think red pilled a lot of people because it showed how dirty and how low the left is willing to get when it comes to to politics. And some people will say, you know what? Christine Blasey Ford seem credible and seem honest. Okay, let, let's say you believe that. They got journalists to track down a lady who went to college, with, undergrad with Brett Kavanaugh. And she said that he exposed herself. I, th- I think I'm getting the story right. He exposed herself after a night of drinking and games or whatever in front of other people. The woman said she, didn't, she had no recollection of this until about six days ago when she consulted her memory and her lawyer. And then poof, all of a sudden she remembers this event (laughs) with crystal clarity. And then they went and found a lady who said that Brett Kavanaugh was at like rape parties and and they got um, uh, Michael Avenatti, he was the lawyer and this became a big thing. And and Jason, I've mentioned this, to me one of the moments that really brought this home is when, going back to one of our friends, Joy Reid, she had, it was Joy Reid, Tiffany Cross, another, you know, again, not the, the, the sharpest uh, bulb in, in, the, in, the, um, in the house. And Jason Johnson, who's a professor of journalism at Morgan State University, who said that Brett Kavanaugh reminds him of guys he grew up with. He said Kavanaugh is the last guy in a gang rape, right? He said, I'm, I'm from this area. I know guys like this. And I, and, and I told my wife when I heard this, I said, I, I hope that Brett Kavanaugh's family, his children, sue Jason Johnson under the ground 
so that when I drive through the tunnel in 395 in the District of Columbia, I see Jason Johnson outside of my window. And I'm going to roll the window up and say, you know what? You got what you deserve. Because you accuse a guy of gang rape on TV with impunity. Because you know nothing will happen to you. Because in today's world, if, if you are a black person and you level that type of accusation against a white conservative, MSNBC has no problem with it. But if you're a white guy from South Africa and you buy Twitter, then you're a Nazi and you want apartheid and you want to you want to elevate white nationalist voices. And we're supposed to think that that's that's normal in our political discourse. Mm. TJ, you got anything you want to add? I do have one thing to add. It it uh, is completely backwards thinking when people say you criticized a black man you're a racist, you criticized a woman, you are misogynist. Because the fact that you are getting criticized means you are a worthy, formidable opponent and we need to do mm. something to knock you down. It's actually a sign of respect. To If you're going down and dirty against these people, you're saying that person's a threat to whatever I'm trying to attain. If I'm running for president and Barack Obama's in my way, I need to get him out of the way because he's good enough to win. And so this backwards thinking has led us into crazy land. I, I, and Delano, I'm gonna let you go. We gotta get to Tennessee Harmony, but thank you so much. I, I've thank made this argument many times that black people, we have this mindset of we can't criticize each other. And, and again, we're denying each other the iron that we need to sharpen iron. Mm -hmm. And I always say, well, white people don't hold themselves to that standard. White people viciously criticize each other. Vicious. I mean, the way white people went after Trump mm. uh, and, and, and the way they split along ideological lines, conservative, liberal, Republican, Democrat or whatever, and criticize each other and have for decades. Why are we denying ourselves that internal fight battle that will elevate all of us in our thinking? It's crazy. Uh, all right, we, I gotta get, I got, we gotta go. We gotta get to Tennessee Harmony. Get your fearless swag at shopblazemedia.com slash fearless. Tennessee Harmony. Thanks. All right, welcome back. Uh, time for some Tennessee Harmony. Uh, Pastor Anthony, Pastor Bobby are back with us. TJ Moe uh, still with us here in studio. Uh, guys, uh, get us rolling with a prayer uh, to bless this conversation, then we'll get into it. God, we come to you on the air again, and uh, it's a real honor to call out to you and say we believe, and we just pray that you'd help everybody who's watching to join with us and that we would really help people to follow your ways. Father God, as we continue, we're thankful for the opportunity to pray to you at any time of day, no matter what, no matter where. We're thankful for this platform. Uh, and Father, we pray that all that we say and do is pleasing and acceptable in your sight. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Uh, this conversation we're about to have is a byproduct of a conversation Anthony and I had last week at dinner. T.J. Moe, I think, brought it up to me at some point independently. Bobby brought it up independent of any. And so obviously 
we've all been feeling kind of the same thing or sensing the same thing, church attendance and uh, what's happening in the aftermath of COVID. Did we pick up bad habits during COVID where we're watching a lot of church services online? Uh, and, and, but as Anthony and I were talking this past Sunday, I think I went to the church you grew up in. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and so 40th Avenue Church of Christ mm-hmm. here in Nashville, Tennessee. Uh, is it Charles Beeman? Yes. Charles, I, I knew, I remember Charles, Pastor Charles, Charles Beeman. And one of the things I had to tell Anthony is like, hey man, Charles is really smart. Only thing I didn't enjoy was they made me wear a mask. I don't like church with a mask. Mm-hmm. And it was just another layer to a conversation we've been having about are people going to come back to church? How much is COVID affecting that? As I, I think I shared with Anthony and, and maybe Bobby as well in conversations, I'm in the habit now where I may watch three different services on a Sunday at home online. And, and so it's almost like, well, if I go to church, uh, I'm, you know, there's a 15 minute commute, there's 30 minutes conversating after church. There's two hours of church. And time you add all that up, I could have watched two services <laughs> at home. <laughs> but what are you guys seeing on the front lines of this? What are your concerns? Why is it important for people to return to the actual building and not engage online? So um, let's um, make a placeholder coming back to can you really be a part of a church if you just watch it online? No, like, you can't. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so that, that'll be a good, like, what constitutes being a part of a church? Let's come back to that. Um, let me just share with you, can I share some of the statistics yeah. that we have uh, in terms of some of these charts? Uh, the Barna Research Group is probably the country's leading research group for evangelical Christians. Uh, Gallup is the larger organization, but Barna's pretty good. And they had some very interesting studies that were completed before COVID. And they pointed out the dramatic drop in church attendance. Before COVID. Before COVID. So these uh, charts, I believe uh, the one that's up right now uh, shows us the number of people who claim to be practicing Christians in the United States before COVID. And you see this dramatic drop from about 50% around 2009 to around 25% before COVID. Okay, now the next chart, I I believe, is uh, the church attendance chart, if we can have that up. And you can see that church attendance before COVID dramatically drops. And again, it's dropping down to around that 23%, whereas uh, a decade earlier, it was around 50%, or the high 40s. Throughout American history, uh, church attendance has ten, tended to average somewhere between, you know, 41 to 48 percent. So huge drop off before COVID. I'll give you what we think are the stats after COVID, but it's not clear yet. And then the next statistic is uh, Bible reading. And for the first time ever, uh, there's been this dramatic drop in the number of Americans who claim to personally read the Bible. Here's the stat. If you personally read the Bible to understand what the Bible says by yourself, 
three to four times a year, then you're included in that statistic. And as you can see with what's on the screen. Three to four times a year? Three to four times a year. Jeez. <laughs> and so you see this 10% drop off last year. Now th that statistic is done by the American Bible Society and that's during COVID. So let me uh, give you kind of just the state of play when you, when you think about the church in America. Huge drop off before COVID. The best experts, Tom Rainer is one of the country's leading experts, and he was saying during COVID, 20% of people who were attending church before COVID will not be coming back after COVID. And uh, we don't know yet if those statistics are right. But the bottom line is, there has been a dramatic drop off in the percentage of Americans who are participating in church uh, before COVID, and it's only continued during COVID. And so, Anthony, our discussion at dinner was about creative strategies to, mm -hmm. to fix that. Mm -hmm. I was arguing, like, what used to work doesn't work anymore, that maybe we got to do different things at the church. More anecdotally, um, some of my friends, those that have done better during the entire COVID transition, pre, during COVID, and now as we're trying to come out of it, those that did better had a good mix of online and in-person activity, not just posting online. And let me share the difference there. Sometimes when we think about online services, churches are basically just putting a camera on the wall and letting people peep in. But actually engaging with people that, that come on, that sign on, that some kind of conversation. Those have done better, uh, but like Bobby's saying, Everything has, has taken a dip even before COVID. And a lot of that has to do with culture. A lot of it has to do with poor church adaptation. You know, church sometimes can be very staunch on tradition and tradition meaning we do what we did last year. Well, as time shifts, as things shift, as culture shifts, some things we have to, as you're pointing out, rethink some things. Not to say that we leave the word. We, we definitely have to stay in the word, definitely have to continue making disciples. But how we engage families, uh, both parents are working now. That's a difference in culture. Kids are more involved or families are more involved in after school activities. So you're thinking, OK, how do we do what we used to do as it relates to community as it relates to that familial atmosphere of church. But how do we do that? And then the last thing I'll say before you, you, you hop back in, the nuance or the, the tightrope that I think that we're gonna have to balance is making church attractive without making church the attraction. Now the attractive, you do want people to, oh wow, here's a great thing that God is doing in this community. Here's great worship services. They've got great classes. They've got all this great stuff. Man, it's so exciting. But the things that we do to attract, we don't want people to become attached to that to where now we lose the savor of what we're really there about. And that's loving God, loving people, and making disciples. So. 
I left my church right after the George Floyd stuff, the one I was in St. Louis, because it was a complete disaster. And I was leading a person who has decided not to tell the truth. And he's, he's continued to do that. I've actually had, had a, they're, they're now refusing to tell the truth. Uh, one of the youth pastors came in recently and said, well, if they're gay and married, then, you know, it's a different discussion, right? So this is where some churches are going. It, it seems to me, what, at least what I'm looking for, and again, I, I realize I'm not maybe your average uh, Christian, but what I'm looking for is a, a man who's willing to tell the truth and who wants to help me walk through life. And so, you know, the, the church being a destination should, Bobby and I were talking about this off the air, should be the community that I'm going to hang out with, not the sermon that I'm going to hear that day. I'm going to see all of the people that are in my community, and this is our gathering time. And so we hang out individually throughout the week. We're all busy, but this is my crew. Like, this is my community that I want to be around. The church, I think, has gone away from that, at least the churches that I have attended over, you know, my, my lifetime, 30 years in St. Louis. It's the four walls, and that's it. And it's we congregate. We talk for a little while, like Jason said, we may talk for a little while after the service, and then we all go home, but that's not my crew. And what I'm looking for is a crew to walk through life. And so uh, the Sunday service, I want to be a destination, something I'm excited to take my daughter to. She can't wait to go see her friends that she gets to play with, and then those are gonna be the people that walk through life. And so I, you know, church attendance is down because to me, that's not being offered. You know, it's like, what? Give them something to come back to, the community to come back to, not a, well, hey, YouTube's pretty popular. I'll just watch it from here. I'm getting the same thing. They should not be able to get on YouTube what they can get when they show up on Sunday. And I think right now they can. Good stuff, man. Yeah. Uh, I, I, one of the ways of framing what you're talking about, I would say, is that God's plan for the local church is that it would be a discipling community, that the church is a discipling community where through uh, Jesus Christ, learning about Jesus Christ, what it means to trust and follow him and be empowered by his spirit. Church is a discipling community where together with other people, we're learning to live life as God would want us to live our lives mm -hmm. as followers of Jesus. So that means that uh, the gathering can be an important part of that, mm -hmm. but the gathering is just a part of it. Mm -hmm. And, and uh, it's a community that you're a part of more than an event you attend. Mm. And so um, just in terms of what the Bible describes, let me give you a couple of references there um, because I think it, it helps for us if we frame mm -hmm. things biblically. Mm -hmm. So the, the first thing I wanna talk about is why would you be a part of church? Because we have a lot of people watching our show and they're kind of like iffy even on church. Like, can, I'm, I'm a good Christian. Sometimes people say, I'm a good Christian. Where does the Bible say I have to attend church? And it's like, oh, you know, again, it's that framework. You think it's just an event you attend rather than a community you're a part of. Right. So let me show you the first passage. It's the book of Hebrews, chapter 10. And it's just one of these black and white passages. Hebrews 10, 23 through 25. I think we have it on the screen. Let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, which is let us consider how we can help each other to be true disciples of Jesus and do what Jesus would do. And so how are we going to do that? Not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day, which would be the day of Jesus' return, all the more as you see that day approaching. So how can we help each other? 
How can we encourage each other? And then one of the best descriptions of church is in the book of Acts, chapter 2, verse 42. And here's how it describes it. I love this definition. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. This is going to be about scripture. To fellowship. That's our relationship with each other, helping each other. To the breaking of bread, probably a reference to communion, and to prayer. It's actually the prayers in the Greek text. Mm -hmm. So that's what God wants us to be about. And that's why church, if I had to summarize it all, that's why church is important. I, I think we're all in agreement there. I, I, I think, how do we get there? How do we, how do we get young people reconnected? 54, 55-year-old Jason Whitlock. As of today. <laughs> reconnected. How, what, because TJ's looking sure. for it. He, you already got it. TJ is already, he has the desire. What can churches do differently? Or, or I think that, I wouldn't even say differently, but just like why aren't churches give, delivering what TJ is looking for? We have a tendency to take the path like water, the path of least resistance. So discipleship, and you hear Bobby and I talk about it a lot, that's a tough journey. It's, it's not a one-time event. It's not a once-a-week event. That's a journey. As Jesus walked with his disciples, it was every day. It was ups and downs, and they got to see him be himself, be Christ, and learn how to be Christ-like from him. They saw him angry. They saw him sad. They saw him frustrated with teaching. They saw him endure. They saw him tired. They saw all of that, but yet he was without sin. So this was the model, and they had to walk through that daily. And as you follow Jesus with his disciples, you'll hear him almost like talking to kids. He's telling Peter, man, put your sword up. Stop that. Don't do that. Don't do this because it's a journey. Now, that's a hard way. That's the way we're supposed to be as far as living our life for Christ. We're supposed to be discipling somebody else along this journey. I'm not Christ. We're both following Christ, but we're trying to do this together. And let's go on this journey together. Church has become Sunday gathering. This is it. And so what happens, and again, I'm like, Bobby, I love the Sunday gathering and it is awesome and it's wonderful and that's a good part, but that's not all that we're to do. But if you put all your eggs in that part, and that's why I said we have to be careful because sometimes we can spend so much time trying to be attractive using the gathering that now that becomes the attraction to where that's all we got. And so when we're looking, some people, when they're looking for churches, they're trying to see what are y'all doing on this, you know, in this attraction? What do y'all have? Is it, man, let's look at the lights and the stage and the music and let's look at this. It's like, well, wait a minute. This is supposed to be a journey that we are all a, a part of. This is a community that we're a part of. My upbringing, what I got from church biblically, you know, because we are the church, that building that we go to is just a building. But that was how I viewed my real life. Uh, you've heard me talk about my past, my father passing away and all these you know, issues in my family's life. But my grandmother, God is our heavenly father. 
That's something that we need to attach to. She attaches me to good, godly men that are trying to live Christ like I came up through life understanding this is what reality is. So I had a distance even with school. I'm going to school to get my education, but I can't wait to Wednesday night to where I can go spend time with my actual friends who are on the same journey with me. I can't wait to youth conferences. I can't wait to, uh, you know, youth gatherings that we have because that was real life for me all all throughout the week, not just Sunday, but all throughout the week. And even now, that's how I try to live now to where it's all throughout the week. When I tell people about some of the things that I do, even on Wednesday, I tell them a part of my day on Wednesday, I get to have Bible class on live air <laughs> because this is a part. Of, I mean, that's what we're doing. We're having a good discussion, but this is that kind of community deal. So as it relates to church, I know you're trying to get to, you know, how do we get them back? Churches do have to make the shift to where we're offering more than just the Sunday morning experience. Because the people that are coming, they're coming with problems. They're coming with baggage. Let me give you a quick scripture, Jason. I'm going to try to get this real quick. John chapter four. There's a woman who has been married five times. She's got a lot of issues. She shows up to the well at 12 noon when the water is at the lowest. Whole community is gone. She's there by herself because of her issues. Jesus meets her at the well. And, and she starts this conversation with him and he says, let me have a drink. And she says, oh, you know, we our people don't talk together. And he says, no, but I, I want I want to offer you some living water. And she says, you don't have anything to dip with. And the well is deep. What I see in that passage as it relates to church and ministry there are going to be some people that come to our assemblies who have drug addiction, who have some identity issues, who have some baby daddy, baby mama issues. They got all of that. And we're just on the, hey, we've got this great Sunday service. And they're saying, do you guys really have what it takes to engage with me? Do you have anything to dip with? Because my problems are really deep. And the solution that we have is Jesus and not just the Jesus that we preach, but the Jesus that we model. Somebody needs to be able to see that. And that's what churches have to offer that goes way beyond the Sunday morning experience. I'm, I'm pleased when you talk about going online. I'm pleased with that because, yeah, some people do. OK, yeah, I get to see all these services and I, I get all this word in. But how are we digesting this? How are we? in community with this? How are we discipling with this? I, I just, what he, he's saying yeah. is awesome and really good. And let's just try to tie it to some of the conversations we have. How do you actually help people to change their lives to be more the way God wants them to be? Do you think an hour on Sunday morning is going <laughs> to do that? Because it's like everything we know is that's not enough. I have this funny joke from the Babylon Bee and it's uh, these parents looking at their teenage child, and the caption says, parents are surprised that one hour on Sunday doesn't overcome 30 hours a week on TikTok. Mm. And it's like, like, we have to do life together. What, yes. what uh, Anthony is describing is that we do life together. That's what it is to be a disciple of Jesus, and that's what it is to be a part of the church as Jesus defines it. We're in this together trying to be disciples and make disciples. The, the, I don't want to speak for TJ because we're all human. We all have issues. 
But TJ, when he's, he's a flawed Christian like everybody else, but he doesn't have the same needs as baby mama drama, drug addiction, blah, blah, blah. Like TJ, I think, I don't want to speak for you, but it's just like he's looking for how can he become a better leader, a better Christian. He, he doesn't have some gaping wound that needs sure. two good parents, blah, blah, blah. And so sometimes, again, and Anthony, I can relate to everything you're talking about because I, I grew up in a black church and homes tend to be more fractured. And it is, the church is a hospital a, mm -hmm. a lot of times, mm -hmm. whereas I think TJ wants a primary care doctor that he goes to check in and check his blood work and make sure that he's on the right track. Can, can, I, but, can I just jump ahead. in on this? Because Please. We all come, first of all, uh, we, we want to let the Bible define what church should be rather than the culture say, this is what I want church to be. So I just want to say that because everybody has this preconception. Hey, I want church to be this. I'd like, we're like consumers and mm. you can't be a consumer Remember? with God. <laughs> right. So you want to be, what does actually God want for me? And then what God's going to teach us is we all come with different gifts, abilities, strengths, weaknesses. And so we come together and we're a part of this church family where we help each other. I can tell you right now, if I had a guy like TJ coming in, he's, he's got leadership. God's gifted him with leadership. And what he really wants is men to disciple him to be the kind of leader God wants him to be because it's just, it's percolating inside of him, okay? This is my, uh, the way I read you, TJ. Uh, my concern is if the church doesn't do it, other people out there are gonna do it. Right. And what God wants is for us God wants us to develop godly men and godly male leadership. And uh, one of the things that uh, I'll just say this, and I'll be quiet because I could talk too much about this, is the church needs to disciple men how to be men to change our families and our communities and our world. And the primary place that's going to happen is in a biblical church focused on disciple making. Jesus encountered a very good man, young man. He was rich. He was young and a ruler. And even that young man had one thing that Jesus said, you still lack one thing. So all of us have a one thing that I need Jesus for. And that's it. All of us have a one thing that I need to be discipled through. All of us have that no matter who However long the list is, we all stand in. Dozen. I got about two dozen. One. Two, hey, we all we all have them. Yeah, we all do more. And that's that's where when I looked at that young man, Jesus said he's got one. Like man, but we all do. So, yeah, a, a discipling and a church and what you gather online, it just what it reminds me of is Sports Illustrated in its infancy. Like it was Sports Illustrated because it was. Photographs, you know, we, you capture these great moments and great writers like yourself would write about that. But to the reader, all I see is the Muhammad Ali standing over. I don't what man, I wish I could have been. And so you don't capture all of that community. You don't capture that life together. You don't capture that online or just with a, a glimpse. Now, you can gain some insight from it. Um, but I believe how God designed it and, and what we quoted in Hebrews chapter 10, we can't stop 
fellowshipping, meeting together as the manner as some is. We have to keep doing it and keep encouraging one another as we see the day approaching. So um, what we're, your, your, the question you posed was, how do we get people back? And we're talking about a community, and I think the community is the thing that gets people living life together, which ultimately is far better than what we'd see in the, in the four walls anyway. I, as we well know, God's principles are way ahead of culture. He already knows the consequences of our stupidity today. So I was reading a uh, study conducted by Sweden, and their health director, the board, whoever it is, has just gone away from uh, suggesting any sort of trans surgery or hormone therapy or anything, because since they've been encouraging that, the 10 years between 2008 and 2018, the trans confusion, whatever you would call it, has gone up by 1,500%. Our encouragement is actively destroying these kids. And reasonable people, even if they're not Christians, see us telling the truth. This is why I always say the truth. God's so far ahead of us in his principles. If we just stand here and tell the truth, people are looking for sanity. So we're living our lives in truth and we're boldly saying, this is crazy. We're not going to do that with our kids. Come hang out with us. So a lot of people that have no interest in being part of this culture will come hang out with us. And that's how the church grows. I like that. Got to you got to be willing to stand against the culture and you'd be shocked at who would be attracted to it. Mm -hmm. uh, guys, I'm sorry we got to go. We're, we're over time here. Uh, but this was good. Thank you, guys. I always like it when TJ's here. Uh, TJ, Delano, Royce, Dave Shannon, all these guys are leaders, natural, born leaders. Uh, all right, that's tomorrow. We'll see you tomorrow. In my system, no relation, we all just wanna have freedom. Sitting on the corner, never been alone, I'm breaking my back for freedom. Bless, we are living, get back, we are receiving, all receiving, we all wanna be free. We want freedom. I just want, I wanna be, I just want, I wanna be, I just want, I wanna be, I just want.